What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For this episode, we're joined by Kayan De Andrews, the academic and author whose most recent book is The Psychosis of Whiteness. The book asks some tough questions, like can society really face up to the realities of confronting racism head-on, without also rethinking so much of the deeply ingrained status quo that many of us take for granted. Joining Kayan Day in conversation today is someone well-suited to ask that question. The psychiatrist, broadcaster and author Femi Oyabode. Now let's join Femi Oyabode and Kayan Day Andrews in conversation. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with Kende Andrews. He is the UK's first professor of black studies at Birmingham City University, where he led the establishment of the first black studies program in Europe. He is the chair of the Harambi Organization of Black Unity and editor-in-chief of Make It Plain. He is the author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, and the new age of empire, how racism and colonialism still rule the world. His new book is The Psychosis of Whiteness, Surviving the Insanity of a Racist World. It's great pleasure to be in conversation with Kainde, and I, I thought that his book is absolutely a wonderful account of uh, the world that we live in, the world that's been structured since the end of uh, colonization of the colonial period. And it, it, the title of the book is, of course, inspired, The Psychosis of Whiteness. And, and I, I, I wish I'd invented that title myself uh, because this is such a, 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 a riveting title. Um, I, I thought I'd ask you, Kainde, how did you come by the title? And if you wanted to say a little bit about how that title has structured your, your book. Yeah, well, thanks uh, for the conversation. It's, it's good to be here and good to talk to you as well. Um, I mean, it really comes out of the, the central concept is this idea of, of whiteness. And as somebody, you know, I work in academia, I, I do black studies. Whiteness is not something which I'd really ever thought about. But then we had so much work recently, the last 10, 20 years around critical whiteness studies, trying to understand what whiteness is. And whiteness became this, this big thing we were discussing. And so much of the discussion was whiteness is distorted, whiteness is fragile, whiteness is property there's always different words for whiteness but as i was thinking about it like what is whiteness really and whiteness is this set of ideas that about how we understand the world i it's so deluded so irrational and so supported by well, hallucinations and the hallucinations of whiteness would be the media would be the movies 
the only the only metaphor I could come up with was like it's like a psychosis, right? Um, and this is as I spend a lot of time in academic spaces, in media spaces, in public spaces, trying to talk through whiteness. It just became very obvious that you, you can't really rationalize with whiteness, and, and and trying to do it kind of makes us go a little bit crazy in, in that process of doing it. So that's where the term psychosis and whiteness comes from. And that's what yes, and and of course your take on the world we live in this this kind of post colonial dispensation is genuinely novel and original. And but I've I've got to ask you at the very beginning whether the idea of a psychosis whether whether I, I think you've hinted that it is a, a metaphor, um, mm-hmm. or or do you actually think that it is a, a a real psychosis rather than a way of speaking? Well, I mean, I think part of the term like psychosis itself is controversial as a, as a concept. So psycho- psychosis now in the DSM-5 is interchangeable with schizophrenia, although you don't have to have schizophrenia to have psychosis. If you look historically, there is a whole, uh, there's a book called The Protest Psychosis by Jonathan Metzl, where he shows that actually what we think of as psychosis is more a political idea than it is a di- than it is a than medical idea. In a sense, of psychosis used to be something for middle-class white people, and then it became something aggressive and demonized to demonize black people. So even the term itself, when you say, is it a real psychosis? What's a psychosis, right? It's in the eye of the eye of the beholder. But I would stress that I'm not saying that white people have white people are mentally ill. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that. I am saying it's a metaphor for how do we understand the the narrative, the use, the ideas. And to be fair, if you go through history, um, many black uh, intellectuals have, have talked about this. Malcolm X talks about how white people are, are, are trying to psych us, psych us out. Um, you have uh, Franz Fanon, obviously a psychiatrist, talks about the idea of black skin, white masks. Um, Robert Williams, who was part of the, he was the deacon for defense, part of the civil rights movement, uh, actually talked about whiteness as a mass mental illness. So there's a, there's a long history of people using kind of metaphors around mental health to understand um, exactly what is happening with whiteness. Yes, yes. So, so I, I totally agree with you, obviously, when you use the term as a metaphor. Um, I mean, we could, we could uh, have a, a discussion over whether or not when somebody hears voices when there's no one around them, whether that is a metaphor uh, or, or, or whether somebody thinks that they're already dead when they're obviously speaking to you, by which yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you know, we can have a discussion whether that's a metaphor. Obviously, I, I do this for a living, so I don't think it's a metaphor because it kills people. Um, but nonetheless, I, I take the point that it's a way of speaking and that it's, uh, and in your book, obviously, it's a way of speaking which is sharpens our are reasoning about these matters, so so I accept it at that level. I mean, the other thing to say about your book is that it occurred at a wonderful time, hasn't it? I mean, it couldn't have occurred at a better time. So that if you think of just the last few days that we have, we have, you know, that we have in in, in Australia, uh, a, a group of human beings who've lived in, in Australia for two hundred and thirty years. Yeah. denying the people who've lived there for 60,000 years the right to be recognized so so your 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 wonderful work is speaking so eloquently to the world that that we live in i wonder whether you want to comment on what's just gone on in australia in relation to 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 your book well this is the point right that whiteness is Essentially, what I'm arguing is that we have to see the world through deluded eyes in order to justify what we do today. And I think Australia example is a perfect example. Um, settler colonialism generally is a, is a feature of the West going into the Americas, going in, uh, into Australia. And then you have to 
make up these justifications for things which obviously aren't justifiable. Like you obviously can't just, you shouldn't just go and dispossess people from their land. You shouldn't commit acts of genocide. You shouldn't commit slavery. There's many things we shouldn't do, but we do them and we allow them to happen and historically we, we support them because that's necessary. This is what essentially what I'm arguing is that the psychosis of whiteness is important because white supremacy in the political economic system is still what rules the day. So a child dies every 10 seconds um, around the world every day and they're, because they haven't got access to food and water, all of those children are black and brown. That's that's white supremacy. But we we see that not as a as a result of racism, white supremacy, histories of colonialism. We see that as a result of, oh, the governments are corrupt. We've tried really hard. They're not working hard enough, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what the psychosis does. It makes us look at things which, if we were being rational, Australia, for example, um, global poverty, for example, we would have to think differently. But we're not. We look through these deluded eyes. And, and the way I say it's like a metaphor like psychosis is because there's there's no rational way to talk to somebody in Australia and, and explain this to them. They'll similarly somebody in a psychosis, they will they'll, they'll just believe what they want, right? They'll 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 essentially hallucinate from the media and popular culture. And that that's why that's that's why the metaphor works. It shows you just how hard it is for us to to shift the way that we see the world today. Yes. So, so I, 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 I thought, Kainde, that your your book was absolutely, absolutely timely because of the situations that we are actually living through as we speak, and and I thought that the the situation, the the events over the last week in Australia, where the Australian settlers, the European settlers in Australia denied the original residents who've been there for 60,000 years, denied them proper recognition. And I, and, and I thought, you know, that is an example of what you're discussing in your book. And I just wondered, wondered what your response to that would be. Yeah, so the reason the metaphor works, and, and it's, it's the idea is that psychosis is produced by white supremacy, and white supremacy has always needed to have a deluded way to do things which are clearly not okay. So for example, it is clearly not okay when uh, British and Europeans went to Australia, committed acts of genocide, took over the land, dispossessed the people. That was clearly not okay at the time. In the same way that slavery was clearly not okay and other forms of colonialism were clearly deeply problematic. But what the psychosis of whiteness does, it allows us to believe that these things are fine, believe these things are okay. And you can see that very clearly in the Australian case uh, today, where still we're still justifying things which really aren't justifiable. And this is where the this is where the this is why the idea works so so well is because then as I've said there's no way to explain to an Australian settler rationally that clearly what you're doing here is is wrong. That's not how psychosis works, right? Psychosis works. The whole point of a psychosis is to allow you to believe that your deluded way of thinking is is, is correct, right? And there's no point in trying to argue with somebody in a psychosis using rational language. In the same way, there's no use in trying to talk to Australian settlers rationally and try to trying to, to move the debate that way. Similarly to any uh, psychosis or illness, you have to deal with the actual problem. And the actual problem really is white supremacy and the way that we move through the world. It isn't the the ideas, the rationalities. That, that's that's not really the problem. And so, yeah, of course, the, the Australia case would be, would be a perfect example. But more broadly, just we have to accept that we live in a world defined by white supremacy, where a child dies every, sec every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food and water. And all those children are black and brown. And that's not an, that's not an accident. That, that 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 is white supremacy. But because of the psychosis, we don't understand it in that sense, and we just make lots of justifications and rationalities that really are completely and utterly irrational.
So, so I mean, you say in your book, we are, and I'm quoting now, Kende, we are embarking upon a journey to explore the hallmarks of the psychosis of whiteness, drawing out the delusions, the collective hallucinations, and often violent, irrational defenses, and so on. So, so I just wondered whether it's possible to to just in a kind of sketch, you know, kind of do a kind of pen portrait of what the features of these psychoses of whiteness, what, what the features are. Um, yeah, so like any psychosis, is it's about having deluded thinking, uh, a complete disconnection from reality. So, for example, uh, in, if you're thinking, how do we understand the world? How do we understand what's happening? Um, and we do this in a way, what whiteness does is it makes us completely disconnected from the actual reality of it. Um, and so, for instance, that could be, as I said before, looking at how do we understand global poverty? Um, how do we understand the debate? One of the things I do in the book is look at uh, colo- artifacts. We've stolen colo- artifacts from places like Nigeria and don't want to give them back, uh, which is pretty simple, I would think. Just give them back. But no, it becomes a whole range of defenses, irrational arguments, um, just really, really made up fanciful things. And as you go through the different things, you can see just how how abs- absurd the arguments for some of the defenses are. But that's the point, right? Because it is completely and utterly irrational. And then the second part of that, um, which is why I use a metaphor of psychosis, is that there are these hallucinations. And these hallucinations are the media. And I think the actual piece, the actual idea of psychosis and whiteness came from me watching the two movies, Bell and Amazing Grace, the only two British movies about slavery, which are also, which are actually about the William Wilberforce Wilbur, or the Wilberforce, uh, all are saying this, this great white man saved saved us from slavery. And Belle is about Belle Elizabeth Dido, probably the only black woman who was enslaved to be raised in like a mansion house. And the movie's essentially a Jane Austen romance piece. And you're like, well, if this is how we're understanding slavery, <laughs> this is what we're seeing about slavery in the media. It's those kind of hallucinations which reinforce just a really deeply problematic and deluded understanding of society today. So so I, I, I took your point about, the, um, about Wilberforce, and and certainly agree with you about the film Bell in so far as it uses the zong as a kind of uh, a way of uh, anchoring particular ways of thinking about uh, human you know but about I can't remember the, the name of the judge now um, Mansfield I think Mansfield. it's called it was and I take your point about that but if I might just ask a little bit about Bell I mean yeah. is it is it not acceptable to to have to do a film, do do films have to speak to the reality of life, of or, or is film are films just like any other art piece that they're allowed to play with facts as they are because they're essentially the entertainment. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could make the argument, but partly the point is there's only two films, so there's only two big budget movies still today in the UK. One of them is about Wilberforce, and one of them is about Bell, which tells you something. That's a contextual piece. Then there's the actual, well, actually, I know you want to, there is some artistic license, but there's so many distortions in that movie. Um, one, she's made to be seen to be uh, better off than her white cousin, which is completely not true. Two, the movie, the way they actually, they portray the Zong case. So the Zong is a case where 132 Africans are thrown overboard. And this is an, this is an insurance case. So it comes to the court as an insurance case. Can the ship captain claim um, for his losses of his cargo as if they were cattle and horses. And in the movie, this turns into this big abolitionist debate, right? Which it just simply wasn't. I mean, it's so it wasn't abolitionist at all. It was the complete opposite of abolitionist. This case, in that final ruling, Mansfield rules that um, 
the Africans were, this case is, as though horses and cattle were thrown overboard. This is a case which underpins slavery. There's a reason why the Zong happens, case happens in 1783. There's a reason why slavery continues happily for 50 years afterwards, because this case actually really writes into English law that we are no more than horses and cattle. And, 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 and actually helps the insurers, because the insurers don't want to pay out, uh, because they don't want to pay out for the ship captain's uh, negligence. But the film turns this into an abolitionist. Like, this is great for abolition. What a blow for abolition, which is just not just wrong, it's completely and utterly irresponsible. I think you have to, you can say you've got artistic license, but I think there has to be some bounds under which that artistic license can fit into. Yes, but there are, you, I could argue, for example, I don't know whether you saw the film, The, the Warrior Queen, which uh -huh. is a, a Hollywood film, and I'm Yoruba, yeah, yeah. I'm a Yoruba person, so so yeah. so so that uh, that's a film which historically uh -huh. is wrong, which yeah. is which is a film which uh, locates in uh, what present day Benin, you know, what we uh -huh. when I was a boy we used to call Dahomey, you know, so yeah. locates locates the grace and the good, and but but the 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 groups of human beings, the ethnic group in what we used to call Dahomey when I was a boy, were no better than the your people by which I mean Yoruba people like me, so 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 and you could argue that there's a mistelling and a retelling and and but that's also true for all sorts of films but i take the point you're making which is that that there, there's so few films coming out of the uk and that uh, maybe there was a need for a factual underpinning to ensure that we're not misled so i i, I take that point yeah, yeah i mean yeah the movies like they don't have to make sure they're stuck but i think the with bell and even to be fair um, the Warwick Queen movie had I had I had I seen that before writing the Psychosis of the Whiteness, believe me, that movie probably would have fallen into the book. Um, yes. <laughs> I think there is. I think you when you actually look at so Bell in particular. I mean, Bell isn't just historically inaccurate. It's portraying a particular. It puts Britain in a positive light in terms of slavery. It puts Mansfield in a positive light, which is completely ridiculous. Um, and then more so, it really just it. The, it's, actually, it's actually written and directed by a black woman as well. Just to point out the psychosis of whiteness is not just for white people with white skin, certainly. But the whole aim of it, she said, was to have a, a, a black woman and to put this black character in a, in a, in a Jane Austen period drama. Because we're so, usually you don't see black women in these period dramas. And so to locate her in this period drama. And it's like, well, we, if we're going to do that, let's do it properly. Black people were, black women were involved in Britain in this period, but we were enslaved. And it, it feels like if you're going to tell that story, don't tell a fairy tale which kind of legitimizes racist thinking. Surely you should tell tell a real story, a true story, um, yes. true-ish at least, <laughs> not not a complete fabrication. Yes, yes. And you 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 already talked a little bit about the um, the artifacts in the museums, and you say yeah. uh, quite a bit in your in your book about museums, and and um, and coincidentally you uh, focused on. Not focused on, but mentioned the the the, the museum in in Philadelphia, and uh, which then of course brought back to mind in my own experience of going to the museum in Philadelphia, where in 1983, when I was much younger than I am now, and 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 I was uh, upset at that time because the there were these objects, which are uh, uh, Yoruba objects, uh, Benin objects there. Uh, 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 and, and they were labelled as primitive art, oh, really? uh, and I thought that was ridiculous because there was nothing. 
primitive about them at all. And in fact, yeah. in fact, some of the, if they are art, are regarded as some of the most re remarkable objects on the planet. Um, so, so, so I thought that was very interesting. There was a meeting of minds because you were seeing something in the same museum that I had seen uh, yeah. all those years ago. And you you talked a little bit about the 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 kind of uh, return the business of the, the return of the Benin objects um, to to Benin to the to the, to the royal family to the royal yeah. the kind of royal museum that the people are thinking of now, and mentioned uh, Victor Hikamano, who is uh, part of the on the committee uh, to receive these objects. And I, but I thought that you didn't say much about what is really problematic about those objects. So it is true that, that in 1897, that there was a punitive expedition to Benin and which of course we, we, we you know, we were taught that as a 12 year old boy and we, you know, had done exams on it and looked at it and, and so on. So, so it's ingrained in our memories. Uh, but you didn't talk about the problematic aspects of it because of course, those items, especially the ones that aren't ivory and the ones that aren't, the, especially the ones that aren't ivory and that are also aren't wooden sculptures, the ones that are bronze sculptures, that those, those objects themselves were melted from manilas. And as you know, like I do, that those manilas were exchanged for human beings. And yeah. so, so, there's, so those objects themselves are problematic. And, and it is yeah. true that we discuss the uh, really important aspects of reparation from the point of view of uh, North Americans and the Europeans. Um, but there's, a, there's still a reckoning that needs to be made on the African side of this, because, because those objects themselves are as bloody as any objects that you can, because they're imperial. I mean, the, uh, the Benin Empire is an empire. It has all the, all the, you know, all the features of imperialism. And I just wondered what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so actually there's a court case in uh, the States, um, Daniela Farmer-Perlman, I think her name is, and she's been involved in the reparations reparations for slavery. Um, and she's, now she's got this court case to actually keep the Benin bronzes in New York, the ones that are in America, keep them in America and not return them, precisely because the, the gold or bronze was, was, was acquired largely through the slave trade. Right? And so actually the, the argument for African, some African-Americans is actually even more, they belong with African-Americans because we were sold to these, for these things. And you know, I did, I, <laughs> there was, I did think hardly, uh, strongly about putting this in the book, but I think so much of that argument, there's such, an, there's such a, this argument that there's something special about those who were enslaved, who were taken away, that this, how, how do we reckon and return? And, and so much of that has become this really nationalistic, we're not really African, um, really deluded argument in itself. I was like, you know, let me sidestep this. <laughs> there is an issue here about there are there is an issue here about how Europe generally, and the Benin bronzes are an example, but not the only example, has plundered, looted the stolen artifacts in many places. And Benin is a good example because of the punitive exhibition, because we know that the majority of them are literally looted in that in that time. So there's that. There's, there is certainly a reckoning, I would say, generally between Africa, diaspora, slavery, which we do need to talk about. But I do think it's a separate conversation to Europe has plundered, Europe steals things, Europe keeps them and hoards them, and then comes up with these ridiculous rationalizations for keeping them. And in the case of the Benin bronzes, again, because we know they're from a punitive exhibition, you kind of can't make all the, you'd think you can't make all these justifications. However, we do see once again and again and again, all these justifications get made. So yeah, I 100% agree there's an issue, but I think it's a separate issue. 
but Mike tie in definitely. No, it, <laughs> it, it, it ties in. It complicates the it complicates the discussion. We we I mean I I take your point because it's easier to to frame a particular which is what you did, which I accept your arguments. I'm not disputing your arguments at all. I just raise the, the my point of it is to do with the complexities of it, and I still think I still think the objects ought to return to Nigeria. But of course, you probably know that in Nigeria, there's a discussion about whether those objects ought to be going to a royal Benin museum or whether they belong to the Nigerian state. And there are questions about how could they possibly belong to the Nigerian state, which didn't exist before 1914. Do you know what I mean? So they're very, I mean, they're very pregnant discussions, aren't they? They, They're never ending. Yeah, but but I think the point that they should go back isn't really, shouldn't be in discussion. Like they were looted, they should go back. We should have a reckoning, certainly about it. But the idea that the idea that they belong in the British Museum, I mean, that's that's not mine. There's one of the cases. I think one of the quotes, one of my favorite quotes in the book actually, is from I can't remember his name, but he was director of the Africa Collection a few years ago in the British Museum, and he was talking about return. And one, actually, the law, interestingly enough, British law basically prevents any return because the way it is is kind of set up to keep to keep these objects. And to showcase them. And so much of the European Museum, the Western Museum of America too, is based on this, let's be a trophy case for colonialism, who has the most stuff and we can, that's our prestige. But there's a, a quote from the, the director of the Africa exhibit at the British Museum a few years ago, where he's essentially arguing, not only does Britain have the right to keep them, but London is a global city. And I think he says it's the most African city in the world. I've got, I've got the quote ready because I, I love, just yeah, like you exactly. love it, I love it too. Exactly. I mean, you, you know, I mean it's, it's like Chris Spring. And he says, yeah. we need to remember London is a global African city, arguably the biggest African city in the world, if you think of all the different people. I mean, it's a ridiculous statement. I mean, given that so- I was born and, born and bred in Lagos, <laughs> you, you, you know, there, there are 12 million people in Lagos and greater Lagos is 20 million people. You, you, yeah. you, you know, I mean, the idea that London is the greatest African city is just it's, ridiculous. It is. Obs- Where do you get that from? But again, that's, that's again, it's a, that's a hallucination. We like to one day hallucinate how many people there are. So there really aren't that many black people in London. And then two, and I say in the book, I think, even if it were loads of, even if it was the greatest African city in the country, in the world, the last place you would put the Benin bronzes, if you wanted black people to see them, would be the British Museum. You don't go there, that's not for us. But so it's just, yeah, it's nonsense. How do you, how do you, how do you if someone's come with that argument, what can you say rationally to them to shift them from their position? Yes. So if, if I might, if I might move on and just um, talk, I mean, the, the bit of your book, which I found, um, impenetrable in terms of the logic, which I couldn't work out, I couldn't say I understood, was when you discussed black-on-black violence and murder. And yeah. I, I, genuinely speaking, I just couldn't understand how you, what you were trying to say there. I, I don't know whether you want to reprise that and just explain how, you, how that is due to psychosis of whiteness. Yeah, because the, the key thing I really want to argue in the book is that look, whiteness is not about white people. Whiteness is a set of ideas and a set of ideas which we, look, we grow up in white societies, even in Nigeria in the colonies. Like, where do you get the education system is still broadly a British education system. The media is still heavily controlled. So we grow up with these ideas and these racist ideas with others, right? And so one of those things around, I mean, I don't really even like calling it black on black violence because white most violence, most violence is white on white, Asian on Asian, people live together. So 
this tends to be you're gonna if you're gonna have violence with somebody, it's gonna be somebody who looks like you more generally. But there is also the issue that you know we are more likely to to be killed in Britain. You're about five times more likely to be murdered if you're black. In the United States, the murder rate is frightening in black communities. South Africa has twenty thousand murders a year. If the murders drop below twenty thousand murders a year in South Africa, it's like a cause for celebration. We have to accept that there is an issue here with um, violence between us. And I would say this is psychosis, right? This, we don't value our lives as much because the society doesn't value our lives as much. And that's the point I'm trying to make there is that we take on these ideas, take on board these ideas. And then so, and it's to counter some of these racist ideas. Oh, look, look, black people kill each other. Okay, that, that is true. But that's not because of some deficit of black people. That's because we em embrace the racist ideas that our lives don't matter as much. And unfortunately, we, not all of us, but some of us behave, behave in that manner. And the example I gave in the, one of the examples I gave in the book was from my dad. I mean, Jamaica, Kingston, the violence there is, is, is fr again, frightening. Um, and my, my dad's taught, my dad's a criminal defense solicitor and was talking to a, um, a Jamaican, a Jamaican bad man who'd killed, probably killed 20 people in his life. He just killed, came to Britain, killed three people, um, got arrested. And my dad's asking him and he's saying, well, have you ever, have you ever killed a white person? And his, his, his response was, he couldn't even fathom it. Like he couldn't even conceive it. Like it wasn't even somebody he could even imagine ever doing. And it just shows that there's, 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 there's something wrong and there's something deeply wrong when we're embracing the ideas that our lives don't matter as much. And I'm just trying to point out, I'm not saying that Jamaican bad men should go out and kill white people and though this would, make, this would equal the score. But I am saying it, it, is, it does show you there's, some, there's something deeply pathological about how we're understanding ourselves. So, so a kind of internalized oppression, if I might put it that way. So, so some, yeah. so, so the wider society, uh, uh, a kind of world which is structured to say that uh, non-white people don't matter. The the non-white person takes that belief system on, and yeah. and then has low self-esteem, feelings of unworthiness to the degree that he dispenses with people who look like himself. Yeah, I, would, yeah, I didn't necessarily say, I don't necessarily, I mean, yeah, you, you, take, you take into low self-esteem, etc. but you don't have to have low self-esteem to think that other black people's lives don't matter. You can have high self-esteem individually and still think that other black people's lives aren't as valuable. That's the world we've created. We've created a world where black life, and actually, actually if you look at um, life expectancy around the world, black people's life is more expendable. Like Nigeria, to go back to Nigeria, the life expectancy is 54. I mean, 54 in 2023, we actually have a, a, a political like, economic system which actually makes black life less valuable. We shouldn't be that surprised when we act as though, when some of us, not all of us, act as though black life is not as valuable. Yes. So so the um, I, I, I wanted to say a little bit about, um, you don't mind me saying, uh, Kendi, I mean, you are an iconoclast, you know what I mean? You take the icons and you... You smashed them, you know. I, so I was a bit, uh, <laughs> I, I was a bit troubled, you know, when you approached, you know, my favorite president Obama. No, oh, God. And, and you and you and you and you approached, you, you know, my most revered African leader ever, Nelson Mandela. Oh, Mandela. Hey. You know, I mean, you and I kind of ask you. You want to respond to that? <laughs> Uh, which one do you want to go first? Well, you have uh, gone for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think, so I think the Obama one's interesting because, for well, one, I promised my mama I'd stop talking about Obama, so I, I really shouldn't do it. But um, the reason I picked up, I think, I think the Obama's really interesting because nobody thought Obama was going to be president. I didn't think at the time Obama was going to be president. I didn't want him to be president. I have to say I've been very consistent and not having much faith in Obama. 
um, because I think what we tend to do is put too much faith in the individual. Um, and But it seemed like Obama was impossible. Like anybody who said, no chance, no chance, Barack Hussein Obama, not possible. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, how does it happen? How does it happen then? And it happens because Obama really is, he's black in the sense, he's, obviously he's black, he's culturally black, he sings at black churches, he's got a black wife, he's, you know, nods to hip hop, etc. But actually his politics isn't progressive at all. And he doesn't aim to be a black president. He's a president who is black, not a black president. So, and I think if you track back all the way 2004, 2008, end of his presidency even now, he was very clear that he wasn't the president for black people, he was just a US president. And the reason why I spend a lot of time talking about him is because we put faith in people because they are black, but it's a mistake. We should actually say, well, actually, what are they doing? Where are they going? And, and, and Obama has to deal with the psychosis of whiteness like any other president. Obama has to produce racist policies like any other president, because that's what the presidency does, right? It's the White House, it's the White House for a point. And in the book, and this is why, this isn't really a criticism of Obama necess necessarily, this is a criticism of the presidency, and you can't have a black president, a president who is for black people, in the, it's not possible, because that's not what the presidency does. And the, the book, the, the, the term I use in the book, which I wish I'd come up with 10 years ago, because I've been saying this for a long time, and it was very obvious, was the White House Negro, right? He's in the White House. The White House is called the White House for a reason. It is to dispense white supremacy. So anybody in that position is going to dispense white supremacy. And that's what that's what Obama does. Not, no indicate, nothing gets better for black people under the first black president. Not one indicator. The only one that gets a bit better is um, employment. So the employment rate goes up a bit for black people. But the income rate goes down. The food stamp usage goes up because the kind of jobs that black people are employed under the first black president are insecure work, right? So it's like, we have a black president, we think we've made progress, but actually it's kind of the opposite of progress, which I think is important to note. That, that makes sense for Obama, I guess. And, and, and Mandela? <laughs> Mandela is different, right? So, yeah, Mandela is different. Mandela, in the, in the long walk to freedom, Mandela actually tells you that he sold out. Like he says it, like I read it and I was like, wow, this is like really honest. To come in towards the end of his time in, um, in uh, Robben Island, the the apartheid leaders they want to negotiate and the rest of the ANC says no we don't want to negotiate we want to we want to have a proper really like work against we're against you and we want to be against you and we're not going to negotiate um Mandela takes the upon himself to negotiate he, he doesn't even spend the last year and a half in prison he, he spends it in house arrest because he's negotiating with the apartheid leaders and if you look at the settlement that the Mandela that Mandela negotiates it's terrible like it's one where you still have white economic power but you have black political power and theory is one where you have, they say 100% sell out the country to international global interests. So South Africa just becomes like the rest of the continent, uh, deeply dependent on foreign aid investment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you look now, looking back, what is it, 25, 30 years later, it's pretty obvious this was going to be the result from Mandela's settlement. And I think people in South Africa, now Mandela isn't given the same reverence he used to be, because I think people realized that he sold them down a, a route which wasn't proactive, right? And... <laughs> And I think the story I tell in the book, which is the most notable about this, is Mandela wants to bring everybody together and including the, the white the white settlers. And there's a place in South Africa called Aranya. So Aranya is an all-white settlement, which I visited a couple of years ago. And it's terrible. It's like a Nazi place. Honestly, the it's like a white propaganda everywhere. You have to be Africana to live there. They defend it saying Africanas are just black uh, Africans with white skin. and It's this horrible, horrible, creepy place. Uh, Mandela when he was president, flew in on a helicopter 
to have tea with Betsy Verwood, who is the uh, the the wife of the of Hendrik Verwood, who was the architect of apartheid. He flew in there to have tea with her, to sit down and have a cozy tea. And he said his reception was as though he was in Soweto. I'm sorry, Nelson Mandela, he sold out. There's no other way to put it. I, I don't know. I, I know it's maybe I'm bursting some bubbles here, but I don't know what else to say about the man. So so it's very dispiriting towards the end of your book. Dispiriting? Yes, it is. It's dispiriting for the reader, <laughs> for a conscientious reader like myself. Yeah. So okay. it is dispiriting. So, 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 how do we get out of it? What, is, what are, what are your, you know, what are your solutions? You know, how, what is your vision to get out, get us out of this situation? Yeah. So after that, I think similarly to the last book. So my last book was the New Age of Empire, uh, which again is pretty bleak. Kind of just says, look, this is what white supremacy is. It's bad. It's really bad, and it's not getting better. And the psychosis of the white says, well, look. Once you understand the political economics, then you understand that we're in a cultural moment and you can look for at different various parts and some of the leaders we think are, 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 are doing well aren't actually doing us any, any favours. So it can feel bleak, but I always say this is a, it's kind of a trilogy. The, the last book of the trilogy I wrote first, the Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, which is far more positive, far more optimistic. So it's actually, look, there is an alternative. You can have a revolutionary politics it hasn't been like this for that long. 50 years ago, my favorite person in history, Malcolm X, uh, was talking about revolution. Revolution was a possibility. It could have happened. Um, but there was this massive retrenchment. And, and, and part of the reason why I wrote Psychosis of the Whiteness is part of the offensive against revolution was violence, lots and lots of violence, don't get me wrong. But the probably the more insidious part was they opened up the West a, a bit. So you have race relations laws in America and England. You have independence movements in across Africa and across the world. And so it feels now like we've made progress, but actually there, we haven't really made progress because most of us live in this very similar condition we lived in before, which can be bleak, I admit, but it isn't. We just have to go back to revolutionary politics, radical politics, and build build, build something else. Like revolution is the only solution. That's kind of the point of the book. So you feel so bad and so bleak and so <laughs> where are we going that we turn around and say, well, actually, let's do something radically different because the things that we're doing now are only going to make things worse if we keep on going round and round and round. So what, so what does the the radicalism, what is it composed of? What is it composed of? I mean, well, for um, I, I make the argument of black radicalism, which fundamentally says you need to have um, a unity across Africa and the African diaspora. It's kind of pan revolutionary pan-Africanism. It says once you, once you do that and you bring together Africa and the diaspora, you can create a different society, right? Africa is the continent that is actually still the richest. But again have to put a, a, a clarifier on this because that richness is based on mineral wealth, which at some point won't exist anymore. Like once Europe and China empty out the continent, they won't be it won't be the richest continent. But currently is the richest continent on the planet. And so can actually organize differently, right? If we if we pull our resources, do things differently. That's the argument in Back to Black. Uh, but when I was doing when I was talking about Back to Black, it was very obvious that people didn't understand this the this the the scale to which this system is irredeemable. This is what I'm trying to say. It's irredeemable, which is why I use this term psychosis. You can't rationalize it out. You can't teach it out. The only way to get rid of it, the psychosis of whiteness is to get rid of the conditions that produce it, which is the white supremacist economic system. Yes. So, so there, your, in your view, then your um, so if you're thinking of the World Trade Organization, we would just destroy that. <laughs> you have to get rid of that thing. I mean, yeah, WTO, IMF. Um, all of them, like if you think that there's the reason they were founded in, after the Second World War 
uh, was to, to Malcolm X calls it benevolent benevolent colonialism. You shift from um, European led, nation state led, lots of violence and, and, and actual like boots on the ground colonialism, and you shift into a form of benevolent colonialism where you still maintain the same economic relations, but you do this through things like WTO, UN, World Bank, all these things, um, and they become the way that manages colonialism. And, that, and that's what happens now. You see countries in in debt, countries having to having to do austerity um, because of the the demands of global finance. So yeah, you have to get those things are not part of the future. Those things have to be abandoned as soon as possible. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's it's been. Uh... A great pleasure and delight talking to you, Kende, I have to say. Um, that's not to say that it's lifted my spirits, because... To say... <laughs> the book, come on. The book's funny. Come on, it'll make you laugh. You didn't laugh in the book, I'm sure. Uh, I have to say that uh, because, because you're, you're, um, the, what you, where you're, you're talking about radicalism, and, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking of uh, the ways in which the world is closer together than it ever was, and how in infinitely, incredibly difficult it would be to un untangle it. So, so even though I do agree in principle with the, the, with the, with the harmful effects of uh, the IMF and the World Bank and the absolutely insidious and pernicious effects of the WTA, WTO, because I, as, yeah. as you know, I'm Nigerian, by birth yeah. and and we understand absolutely totally and completely how the exchange rates determine yeah. poverty on one on one half and wealth on the other and 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 the way i think of that is very very simple that that an, an, a, a taxi driver in lagos doesn't have the same quality of life as a taxi driver in London, and there's absolutely no good reason why that should be the case. So, so, so on on, on many grounds, you and I are, we're sitting in common ground, really. Um, but how you then untangle all of that without without uh, violence? Um, how you how and how you untangle it without causing more harm to poor people? Um, yeah. With a promise, because there's a promissory note of what yeah. what the likely benefits of untangling would be, um, yeah. and I'm not, and I'm never so. Sure, I, I don't particularly like promissory notes because I'm never sure myself whether the promises are going to actually come out in real life. Um, but <laughs> but but as I say, I mean your your analysis of the of the situation is absolutely um, spot on, and um, and I'm, I'm not myself persuaded that um, psychosis of whiteness or white supremacy is is the cause of it. But I, I don't. What I mean is, I'm not sure that I would frame it that way. But I just, I, I, there's no question in my mind that your analysis of the the parts of these things that we've been discussing is just very, very accurate indeed. Thank you. I mean, one of the examples I was going to, I didn't actually make it into the book, but thinking about um, this metaphor of psychosis, it's actually Kwame Nkrumah. I talk about it in Back to Black. So Kwame Nkrumah uh, says neocolonialism has an Alice in Wonderland craziness to it. And if you think, and he's, the argument he's giving is, the argument he uses is, um, Lime production in Ghana. So you know Britain goes, but Ghana, Ghana's economy is still controlled by by British companies, foreign companies, and you know they go into Ghana, they take out the lime juice. Uh, the, so the, the the only real place where Ghana makes money here is the 
the really, really low pay of people picking limes. The limes are then taken to Europe, put into bottles, made into juice, and then sold back into Ghana at this crazy price that nobody can, can afford. And if you think that basic model, that's how things still work. It still work with, and Nigeria is a perfect example with oil. I mean, why is Shell controlling the oil in Nigeria? So that is, I mean, how do you justify that, right? That, that you, there's no rational way to justify that. And until we see that for what it is, which is completely and utterly illegitimate, delusional, irrational, and, and reject it, we're really not going to go anywhere as, as a continent at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, as I say, I totally agree with you. So <coughs> if you think of the foundation of that exchange, so if you think of the Niger Delta, we're not talking now about petroleum, we're talking about palm oil. So, so if you think of the Nigerian Delta, the, yeah. there would have been no industrial revolution without the Nigerian Delta, because the palm oil was what oiled, if I by use the word like that, you, you know, was what oiled <laughs> the machines. Yeah. And, and you couldn't have had those machines working without the palm oil. And, and Jaja of Okobo, you know, who in our, in our system of knowledge and education is far, far, far much more important than Ovoramo in, in mm. Benin. Jaja of Okobo, who wanted to sell directly to the, to the Liverpool merchants yeah. and had his own boats, his own ships that brought, his, brought palm oil and the, and the British wouldn't let that happen. So they took the Royal Navy gunboats up the creeks, up the, up the Niger Delta and killed everybody in order to ensure that they had to be the middlemen, that he couldn't sell directly to the markets and so on. So that, that is the foundation in our part of the world of the exchange, of the ways in which these, these things, these produce, products are exchanged. And, 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 and as you correctly identify, that hasn't changed at all. And, and which of course is why I brought in the WTO into our discussion because, yeah. because if you look at the contemporary life that we live, so you, what you have is that you have a person working, my part of Yoruba land, we grow cocoa. You yeah. cannot mill cocoa. You have to sell the pods, yeah. the beans, because yeah. the European market says that we can't trust you to mill it properly exactly. and that you have no yeah. systems for ensuring that they're safe. Therefore, so, so you then have the chocolate sold back to you. It's incredible, you know, absolutely incredible profits being made. And the poor guys who, who grow the cocoa uh, can't send their kids to school. So, yeah. so, so, so we're totally at one about the inequalities and the injustices and the structural uh, arrangements, which totally impoverish practically everybody else in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so we, we are together on that. And But how you shift that, how you shift that is uh, the discussion. And I think we've probably exhausted all the key points. There's so much more we could we could talk about because we haven't talked about we haven't talked about the Commonwealth and we haven't yeah. talked about the royal family. And um, uh, so so there's so much we could talk about. But I think the main the main issues the main uh, uh, items we've 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 dealt with them and um, and and we more or less agree that the state is horrendous. Um, and the discussion is how, how we extricate ourselves from this situation.
Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. Revolution is possible. Remember that. <laughs> well done. Maybe I'm too old for that, Kenya. Maybe I'm too old. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.